I think Jesus picks up on this whole subject in a part of the Bible. And he picks up on it because actually it was a place where there were people who were starting to question him about his interactions with those outside the kingdom of God. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to go to Luke chapter 15 for me, please. And Jesus tells three parables, three stories, if you like, that actually answer that question. They answer the question that the Pharisees and the scribes are asking, and that is, why does this man hang out with sinners, and why does he hang out with tax collectors? And as we start reading the verse together, you realize that actually even that in of itself could cause us to pause for a moment and think about how we would navigate that kind of reality in our own lives. I mean, when was the last time that you spoke to somebody for the first time about the God who has changed the whole of your life? When was the last time that you had a real conversation with somebody about the things that you have discovered about God? When was the last time you hung out with people that perhaps in the cold light of day some people may have had questions over? And how many times have you avoided what you think other people will think about you for the sake of being the person that God has called you to be? So in Luke chapter 15, these three stories appear, and it's Jesus answering the questions that is on the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who should have liked to hang out with Jesus, but found him difficult, and also the questions of the people who liked to hang out with Jesus, but didn't necessarily always agree with him. Let's read from verse 15, sorry, verse 1 together, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. Can you imagine what that looked like? All kinds of people with a variety of life experiences, but somehow gathered to hear what Jesus had to say. When was the last time when a room like this was filled with people of that kind of nature? When was the last time that you were in a context where the vast majority of people in that context were not necessarily currently followers of Jesus Christ? And yet Jesus' love for people, his passion for the purposes of God, and his compassion for people caused these people to come out in their droves to hear what he had to say. I wonder what kind of preaching would have been shaped around that kind of audience. Because sometimes I think on a Sunday, particularly when we're trying to communicate with people, we have made the presumption that the vast majority of people in this room actually already know Jesus. And I'm wondering if there's something about what we preach about that actually needs to be thought through a little bit for perhaps the fact that there might be some people who don't know Jesus personally. And would that change how we would communicate? Would that change the vocabulary we use, and would it change the stories that we tell? Now, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus pauses, he gathers his thoughts, and he begins to tell this parable. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not 
repent. So this particular parable, this particular story, is Jesus explaining to the hearers, both those who are Pharisees and scribes, and those who are as yet not necessarily followers of God, how God feels about the lost. He's trying to disclose the heart of God to both categories of people. And you know, he's explaining it brilliantly because the analogies and the stories and the metaphors are absolutely breathtaking. But he's also explaining it for this purpose and this purpose also. That you and I, those who claim to be followers of God, would have the same perspective that God has on those outside of the family of God that God has himself. In the story, the shepherd leaves those who have been placed in safety and he goes back. And it doesn't tell you how far back and it doesn't tell you how long the journey was and it doesn't tell you how many days have passed. But it would seem to me that it's a significant period of time. It's not 20 minutes. It's not, I've suddenly noticed I haven't got one of my sheep and I'm going back and I find it, so let's have a party. It would, the party would suggest that quite a substantial period of time had taken place before first identifying that one of the sheep has gone astray and actually that sheep being returned to the fold. But notice the heart of God in this. Because so often in the church that we're in, and in any church for that matter, we tend to have an orientation to the found. We tend to be consistently attracted to and engaged with those that are already safe, those that are already saved, and those that are already part of the family of God. But as we read this parable and these three parables, we realize that the shepherd in the story probably represents for us God. God loves the found, but he cares profoundly about the lost. God is interested in any individual who is outside of the kingdom of God. He cares deeply and profoundly for anybody who is not necessarily in this kind of gathering, but actually somehow through some fault of their own, or maybe disobedience, or maybe just waywardness, has found themselves outside of the parameters of the blessing of God. And he is interested in connecting that person to who he truly is. God cares about lost sheep. It says here that when the man finds the sheep, he goes home and he rejoices. And there's a theme throughout these three parables where that which has been lost is now found. And the reaction to that is a reaction that I think we need to pay attention to. Because the minute whatever is lost is found, whether it's a sheep or a coin or in the third story a son, there's a celebration that takes place that is actually quite profound. Now, I don't know about you, but if I lost a sheep, I probably wouldn't come home and have a party. I probably would come home and have a sleep because I might be exhausted trying to find the thing. And you'll notice in the story that the shepherd carries the sheep on his shoulders. There's a care and attention and the capacity to carry the weightiness of something or someone that's gone astray right back into the place of safety and into the place of rescue. Now, when I think about how God cares about lost sheep, I know this isn't just a story about animals. It's a story about anyone or anything that's living outside of the parameters of the blessing of God. My question to myself is, do I have that heart? Do I think like that? 
Do I celebrate those returning home experiences? Am I the kind of person that's reflecting God in this kind of way? I mean, we sing all our songs and we worship, but tonight at some point I'm going to pray for some people and ask if they would like to come back into relationship with God. I'm wondering if at that point we will start to reflect this reality. Will our celebrations there be greater than our celebrations at the beginning? Because it's not enough for us to have a theology that God cares about people. We need to start orientating our lives in a manner and a way that actually demonstrates that that is true. You see, church, we can talk about revivals and we can talk about the city being changed and we can talk about all kinds of things. But the truth is, the truth is, we're quite comfortable singing our songs. We're quite comfortable in this environment. And how are the people of this city ever going to connect with the God of glory that we've been singing about? The only possible means or way that can happen is through your life. And what you celebrate, you propagate. So I want to be the kind of person that this matters to. And actually, I want to be the kind of person that goes after that which is lost. And so tonight, there's a young man sitting next to me. And he's lost. And the biggest inconvenience for all of us in a moment like that is what will his behavior be like? Will he sit down? Will he go through the motions of what we think is a service? And my heart standing there was really challenged by that because at any point that could turn into anything. But if we are like God and are drawn towards those who don't know him, then we look beyond some of that behavior and we look beyond some of that, that brokenness because we are looking to see if God can use us in some way, in some shape or form to connect that person with the God who will heal and restore their broken lives. The second parable is slightly different. The analogy of the shepherd would be one that was familiar to the people that were the hearers. But also now Jesus starts to address the women in the crowd. And he speaks specifically into a situation that they will identify with. Let's read together verse 8. Or suppose a woman had ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Now, I don't know if you've ever lost a coin, but when I find a coin that I've lost, I don't throw a party. It seems a little excessive, but I'm sure there's something here that we need to understand about the heart of God. And this is what she says to her friends and her family. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. And now what's happening here is Jesus is redirecting the attention of those who are listening to him to the value that God places on anything or anyone that is lost. You see, here's the deal. If Jane came home to me tomorrow night, having visited her mother, and she said this to me, I've lost my engagement ring. And then added to that, don't worry, I've got the keys to the car. 
and my handbag is intact, would I think, oh, well, it doesn't matter then. It doesn't matter that you lost your engagement ring because you have the keys to the car and you have your handbag. No, I wouldn't. And neither would she. What we would do is leave everything that we have that we've got and we'd start hunting for that which has got lost. We would move into a completely different mindset trying to find something that actually to us is significant and valuable. Isn't that true of any of us when we lose something that we think is significant or valuable to us? I remember once being in Toronto and a friend of ours who came with us to the meetings lost her engagement ring. And you know, her husband was a wealthy man, so it was sizable. And I had an invested interest in finding it. I'm not sure that my character would have lived up to disclosing that, but I had an invested interest in finding it. And we spent, we should have been at the conference, we spent five or six hours looking for this engagement ring. And then she realized that she dropped it down the toilet. Even at that point, (laughs) even at that point, I was happy to go searching. I was happy to go searching. Something that costs five or six thousand pounds is worth a wet hand, don't you think? It's worth a wet hand. It's worth an awkward moment and, and worth a little conversation around that. We even went down to the reception and asked, could they ring a plumber? We didn't say, well, it doesn't matter. She's got the key to the room and a ticket home. When something precious is lost, you move everything in your life and you go searching for that which is of value to you. It becomes your greatest priority. It's a significant moment where there's clarity about what you should give yourself to. And I believe what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that's how God feels about someone who's lost in the kingdom of heaven. Someone who's living outside of the relationship that's possible with God. This woman, she moved all her furniture. She swept her house She lit a candle. She went looking into every nook and cranny to find the coin that was so important to her. And when she found it, she celebrated. And she gathered people around her to do likewise. Sometimes when I'm talking to somebody and they are drunk or disrespectful towards Jesus or indeed in a place where they're so angry and so broken... I have to remind myself that they might just be the kind of person that somehow got lost along life's journey. And you know, some of the tragic stories of people, in fact, the person tonight used to worship in this church over 10 or 15 years ago. And the tragic story is that somehow he has got lost on the journey. And I have no right, no right to sit there in judgment of that. I have no excuse to do that because I am a man who's been saved by grace. I know with clarity that God came looking for me because I was not looking for him. And my priority isn't that everybody else has their sensitivities met. My priority has to be like God's, that that person is engaged with, with respect and honor and the hope that somehow some connection given to a moment like that will bring people to a place where they actually find God again. 
So what is this? This is God's view of what is lost. This is God's view of people who are living outside of the love relationship that everyone in this room who knows Jesus has been blessed to experience. God cares about lost people. God is a lossologist. He has skill and capacity to reach people and he's waiting for his church to start to come into alignment with how he sees lostness in our society. Do you know when we're judging people for the way they dress or how they behave, they are people who are lost. They're lost. They don't have what you have. They don't know who you know. They don't have that sense of love, that sense of acceptance, that joy that comes when you worship God. They don't know any of those things. And if they're taking drugs, it's probably because they're looking for what you've got in all the wrong places for all the right reasons. When you're sitting opposite somebody who is not necessarily warm to the gospel, remind yourself of this, will you please? There was a time in your life where you were stone cold to the gospel and somehow the heat of God's love managed to touch your heart and transform your life. We are people sometimes who forget where we've been and therefore don't celebrate the opportunities we have before us as we seek to engage people with a God who loves everybody equally. So this is how Jesus viewed the world. This is how Jesus ministered to people. So now it makes sense whenever you look at the stories in the Bible of the woman caught in adultery, how he would be drawn towards her because God is drawn towards lost people. The woman at the well who had five husbands and a reputation so bad that she had to come out in the heat of the day because she couldn't come out when the other women came out because they were quick to judge her. So she avoided that awkwardness and she came out in the heat of the day, which wouldn't have happened in that culture. People would come out before the heat rose and Jesus is at the well and he's not repelled by her. He is not, you know, standing at a distance for her. In fact, it is Jesus that opens up the conversation and says, could I have a glass of water, please? Why? Because God is a lostologist. He seeks that which is lost and that which is broken. Because he wants to connect lost and broken people with the beautiful and glorious God that heals and saves and transforms lives. There's a value system that heaven has that should shape our thinking. It should clear up the clutter of our priorities. It should cause our lives to be very vigilant that we don't default to a bless me club, that we take the blessing of God into every environment that we actually can walk in. And you know, church, I want to say to you, the songs you're singing today should have an impact on how you're living tomorrow. It's not enough to say waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, and you walk into the darkness and you don't allow the light to shine. It's not enough for us to do that anymore, particularly in light of the fact that we're called by God to host a move of the Spirit that's outside of the church where people in ordinary and difficult situations are experiencing the extraordinary love of God. It's not enough for us to have great moments of worship that don't translate into great times of mission. Let me continue. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. 
The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Now, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. And so they began to celebrate. This particular story reminds us of some truth that could be real for some of us in this room tonight. The first thing I want to highlight to you about this is that the boy is seating at the father's table, eating the father's food, but his heart is far from his father. Now, how many times have we gathered around the truth of God with that kind of reality inside of us? You see, lostness is not just people who are outside of the church, who haven't as yet come to a place of recognizing the reality of God, but there can be quite lost people inside the church. People whose hearts have shut down to God. People who once burned brightly in love with Jesus, but somehow have become dulled by their experiences of life. People who are sitting at the Father's table, listening to the Father's conversation, but their hearts have already made been made up regarding their relationship with the Father. And you know, lostness is not exclusive to people outside the church. It's something that many of us battle with. There's a real problem in the church of people not necessarily being connected with God into the fullness that Jesus Christ has provided for us. And we can sing our songs and pray our prayers, but our hearts can already be far from the Lord himself. We can go through the motions and the rituals of coming to a place like this and doing on the outside what looks like all the right things, but on the inside our hearts can be dead. They can be separated. They can be angry with God. They can be distant to the God that we claim to sing about, love, and indeed say that we follow. This boy had left home before he left home. This boy had opted out before he physically moved out. You know, I've been a Christian for a number of years and I've watched a pattern in church life. And I'm saying this to you because I feel this is important to say out loud. There are people who are at the front loving Jesus and their journey with God is great. And then something happens to them and they move four seats back. And then before you know where you are, they're near the back door. And then eventually they disappear from the congregation altogether. 
What is that? You see, they may have been singing the songs in every part of that journey, but the reality is they had already, they had already come to a place where their heart was not necessarily connected to their God. And so the natural working out of that is when your heart's not connected with God, this environment becomes very difficult for you to be in because there's something about the saints gathering together that brings conviction to your heart. And you know, you see people at the front and I've watched it for years. You know, God is blessing somebody and you're getting bitter at the back. God is doing something in this person's life and instead of rejoicing with the fact that they're breaking in and breaking through, you actually have a resentment because what about you? Why didn't it happen to you? Why hasn't God blessed you? And you have to be ever so careful with that kind of stuff because that's the internal stuff that determines the external realities. So you can be lost outside of relationship with God, but you can become lost while you're in relationship with God. And so the boy does the unpardonable thing. He wishes his father dead. And he goes to his father because his heart is so distant from his father now. And he says, it's almost like saying, Dad, you know, my greatest prayer would have been that I woke up this morning and you weren't here. Because then I could have had everything that was rightfully mine and done with it as I so pleased. And church, I want to say to you that sometimes When we are at a distance from God, we have the tendency to have a sense of entitlement that God owes us something. You need to stay close to God to keep yourself away from that sense of entitlement. There's absolutely no way that God owes you anything. Everything you have is because God is a God of grace. If you're saved tonight, it's because God is kind. If you're blessed tonight, it's because God is good. We can never operate out of a sense of entitlement. And you know, I've heard people, and it's further on in this story, say, well, I've prayed for years that a husband would come along, and she, she's not even good looking, and she got a husband. What happened to this? Well, here's the key. Celebrate with those who are celebrating, and you might be next in line. I felt that was a word for somebody tonight. I'm just. (laughs) So the boy, because his heart is far from his father, actually wishes his father ill. He wishes his father dead. And this particular uh, process is something that really, in the culture of the time, he should have been stoned for. Because he's dishonoring his father. He's dishonoring his father's reputation. He's dishonoring his father's position in his life. So the father thinks through the implications of that dishonor. And he decides to give the son the very thing that the son says he needs. He's looking for something to make him happy. And so the father does what he needs to do. And it's almost like he makes it easy for the boy to, to work this out. And so you know what happens. He leaves the house. He ends up getting involved with other things. And before he knows where he is, he, he wakes up and he's kind of sleeping with pigs. He's hanging out with pigs. It's, for a Jewish person, the most horrendous thing. And, and such is the starvation in his life, such is the hunger in his soul, and it's both physical and, I think, spiritual, that he actually wishes that he could eat what the pigs were eating. And then a moment of clarity comes. And he decides that he wants to restore what has been broken. 
And so the boy makes his way home. And as you read through the scripture, you realize that actually that journey may have been quite some distance. In fact, he was in a far and distant land, so it would have taken some time. And I could imagine that if I had been this boy, I would be rehearsing what I wanted to say to my father all the way back to the house. You know, Dad, I'm so sorry that I said this. I don't mind, you know, I'll put the bins out every time. I don't mind, I'll cut the grass, Father. Just give me the worst jobs. Give me the worst jobs, Father. And you know, he's rehearsing and he's rehearsing and he's rehearsing it. And the Bible tells us here that the father, while the son is still a a long way off, sees him. And he lifts up his robe, which would have been something that, that was embarrassing, if not slightly inappropriate for a man of this stature. And he runs towards the son. It's not even the son running towards the father. It's the father running towards the son. And he falls down at the son's feet. And you can imagine the boy is about to disclose his rehearsed patter. And I feel in the scripture, it doesn't say this, but the dad puts his hand up and puts it on the boy's mouth. And why did the dad run out? Because you can imagine all of the neighborhood catching wind that the boy's coming home. All of those religious people who like to make sure that everybody else gets punished for things. So the dad runs to grab his son before the righteous ones come to stone him. And he puts a ring on his finger and he puts sandals on his feet. And I love this picture. In the pigsty reality of his brokenness, the father says, take a robe, get the best robe in the house and throw it around my son. I will have no child of mine identified with shame and guilt and fear. I want every child of mine to be covered. And as these three stories are being told, everyone in the audience is asking this question. Who am I in these stories? Which person am I in the stories that are being told? And remember, there were sinners who liked Jesus, but they didn't necessarily always agree with everything that he said. And there were saints that didn't like Jesus and fought with him about everything he happened to say. It's a battle for us, church. Because the truth is, if we're not careful, and I think sometimes we're not even not careful, we're slightly clumsy, we can fool ourselves into thinking that all this is about us. When Jesus speaks to the church and invites them to love one another as he has loved us, He's not just saying, I want you to have such a loved up experience in the church. Actually, he adds to that very statement. And this is how people will recognize that you're my disciples. The end isn't that we're loved up. The end is, is that we show up and other people start to see that God has turned up. It's not just that we have great relationships And we iron out all the creases of what it means to be family with all our dysfunctionality. God knows we need his help with that. But actually the whole point of that kind of community, the whole whole essence of why that's important to God, is that we become a reflection to others of what they can have if they give their hearts and their lives to God. It's time for the church to care about the lost. It's time for us 
to move beyond the parameters of our building and recognize that God wants to turn up in our living room when we're having dinner with people. In fact, over our Easter weekend, on the Saturday of that weekend, I would love for us, and I'm suggesting it to the church, please take it or leave it, that we would have missional meals. Rather than drawing everybody to here, which will be good, we'll do that, we're going to scatter our secret weapons of mass destruction all around the city. And as you gather with people for a cappuccino or a frappuccino or breakfast or brunch, or if you're posh and you do something like late tea in the afternoon with cucumber sandwiches and or it's a full-blown Caribbean or African or Nigerian or Ghanaian or Filipino meal. It doesn't matter to me what's on the table. What matters is that you're connecting with people who as yet have not been allowed the luxury or the blessing of connecting with the God who has transformed your life. We have to be purposeful in our intentionality to reach out to people. When we were in Glasgow, we had a ministry that worked with people who were caught up in the sex trade. And it started with a couple of people that prayed on a Thursday night in the city. We'd go out into the streets and we'd pray up near Sucky Hall Street. It was ironic to me that the girls that were working in that area actually were in the finance area of the city. I felt there was a spiritual connection there. Sex and money have some kind of partnership. So we went for weeks praying and praying and praying and praying. And, you know, I remember standing on the street corner and saying, God, you know, why did you bring us to Glasgow? We did lots of work in Birmingham when we were pastoring there with, with people caught up in that industry. But, you know, Glasgow and, and, and the, the kind of depth of, of brokenness that existed in that city was really, really profound. And, you know, one example would be that we were standing on the street corner and this 15-year-old girl comes up and she's got a two-year-old son with her. And because she's working, she's telling him off and smacking him and wanting him to go somewhere else. And so I just grabbed this two-year-old boy who was a nightmare. He was a nightmare, this child. Because he, he well, can you imagine what he's seen? Can you imagine what he's, he's been through? And so we, a couple of the ladies with me, a couple of the older gentlemen that were there, that were there for prayer and, and protection, you know, we just sat with him when we, somebody had a ball in their car, they went and got it and they just began playing with him. This is like, this is like 11 o'clock at night on the streets of Glasgow. And as I stood there, I said, God, why are we here? Why have you brought us here? You know, and God said to me, this is what he said. He said, if you take care of the ones nobody wants, I will give you the ones everybody wants. And you know, when you start to connect with people that have such brokenness in their lives, I mean, you're just, it's like an abyss of problems and difficulties and unforgiveness and pain. And you know, it's so, so difficult sometimes to give yourself away to those people at the measure they require you at first. But over time, that starts to become a little bit different and they start to find a little bit of normality. I mean, who's normal in here? But whatever that is, it's so overrated. But they start to find some kind of measure of, of normality in the way they live their lives. And, you know, within a moment of me seeing this, this 15-year-old girl, um, I met this young lady who came to so glamorous 
because um, if you've ever worked with people in this industry, you know sometimes what they have to do and what they go through and the drug addictions, their bodies are just, they're just wrecked really, they're wrecked. And, and so this young lady was remarkably different. Um, same night, same street, and she was talking and very eloquent in her speech. And I can't even remember her name, but let, let's say it was Sarah. And she starts saying to me, are you Christians? Are you Christians? I said, yes, we're Christians. She said, what are you doing out here? I said, why wouldn't we be out here? And she said to me, good answer. She said, well, I thought Christians just stayed inside the church. I said, maybe some do, but we're actually taking the church to the street. How do you feel about that, Sarah? And she said, well, you know, no one's ever talked to me about Jesus. I said, let me talk to you about Jesus. And she began to tell me that she had been given. She was a third generation sex worker. Third generation. So she told me that when she was about five or six, that she went along to a church and the Sunday school teacher gave her a, a children's Bible, a good news Bible. And every night when she finished working, she would go home and she would read the Bible. She didn't understand the story. She'd never met anyone uh, since that time. And she'd be kind of mid-twenties. She'd never met anyone who had reflected Jesus to her since. In fact, she tried to go to church once and the pastor actually made a pass at her. And unfortunately, that was the end of the journey for her. So she didn't go back. So we're in this moment. And I said, what do you want to know about God? You know, like I'm an expert. I don't, let's talk anyway. And she starts asking questions. You know, why did Jesus come and why did he give his life? And so we're talking and I'm crying because I think this is just a privilege. What a privilege to be in a moment like that with somebody. And she said, you know, um, I'm going to come along to your church. And I said, if you don't come along to our church, Sarah, I'm coming back out next week and I'm going to hunt you down. And she said, okay, I'll come along to your church. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> you know, I'm working here. And so she turned up at the church. And I was surprised that she turned up at the church because sometimes at moments like that, people make promises that they don't or haven't always got the capacity to keep. And if you're an addict of some description, all kinds of things can happen between one moment and a second moment. And so she was there at the church and, you know, she was kind of, she was like awkward. She didn't really know what to do or how to respond. And so I came down off the platform. I was taking part in the worship. I came down and I just said, it's so lovely to see you. My wife Jane was with me. And I said, oh, this is my wife, Sarah. She's going to sit with you. Is that okay? Oh, she said, oh, that's, that's good because I don't know whether I should stand or sit or what I should do. And I said, well, don't worry about any of that. You're here. That's the main thing. And so we had a meeting where we talked about Jesus and we invited anyone in the room. I wasn't really thinking about Sarah. I thought we'd be months away before anything. Like that. But anyone in the room who wanted to connect with this God who loved us so powerfully. And she put her hand up and she gave her heart to Jesus. She gave her heart to Jesus. She didn't give her life to Jesus. She gave her heart to Jesus. Okay. And a couple of weeks went past and a couple of months went past and she would turn up occasionally and, and uh, we had this incredible sense that God was with her and she, she started to become a little bit more passionate in the worship. She started to, I mean, in Glasgow, it was a wonderful church. People would ask you questions when you were speaking. So what does that mean? I don't get what that means. It was a, a very interesting church. And so you would try and respond the best you could. And so afterwards, I had a few conversations with her and I could see that her, her certainty about God's love was growing in her heart and in her life. And then she met a young man in the church and she started dating him and he'd come from a very broken life 
And then over about a period of about 18 months, she got married to this young man. And within a few months of of being married, she found out that she was pregnant and they had their first child. You know, a number of years passed and and what happens in in moments like that is, you know, you, you get distracted by other people's lives and what God's doing elsewhere. But one day I was standing on the platform, we were leading worship, and I looked down at this little family. This little family, two children... This guy that, you know, had been crazy into all kinds of stuff, just loving Jesus with his arm around his beautiful wife. She's worshipping God. And I looked at her kids, and this is what I thought. Devil, you didn't get them. You didn't get them. You didn't get them. In a moment, I realized that anyone who is lost that we make the attempt to try and reach with the love of God and the good news of Jesus, who comes into relationship with him, actually changes the outcome of all of those who follow in their wake. I was the first born-again Christian in my family. Oh, that was tough. Particularly with my religious bigotry. and I mean, they made it really tough for me. I mean, they would nail me. I think they'd sit up all night discussing the hardest questions they could ask me and wait for me to come home from working in the nightclubs and then they would be up at three. What about this? What about that? Years passed and I get this phone call from a young lady called Philippa. And Philippa is my uncle's daughter, so she's my cousin. And she says... Is that Simon? I'm in Glasgow. I said, yes, it is Philippa. She said, this is Philippa. I said, Philippa who? She said, Uncle Pat's daughter. I said, wow, Philippa, I haven't seen you since you were that high. Oh, she said, I'm a bit bigger than that now. And she said, I I wanted to call you because I've become a Christian. I said, that's amazing. How did you become a Christian? She said, because my mum became a Christian. Now, I hadn't seen my family, this part of my family, for a long time. I said, how did your mom become a Christian? She said, somebody started talking to her about Jesus, and and she went along to a church, and she kind of got saved. I said, she either saved, or she's not kind of saved, but but she said, well, she definitely saved, and she invited me to come too, and because I was musical, I got involved in the worship team, I got involved in other things, and I've got saved. So I put the phone down to her and I think, that can't be right. Because if you knew these people, why would God save these people? These are crazy people. These are crazy people. My family are crazy people. How did that happen? And you know, I think the thing that offended me the most is I wasn't there when they prayed their prayers. I had talked to them for weeks, months, years about Jesus. And you know, if, if I think I must have put them off. I think that's the only conclusion I could come. And God had a plan B and he sent a secret weapon of mass destruction to talk to them because God cares about lost people. He cares about people outside of the community of love. And so Philippa is Philippa Hannah, who is one of this country's premier Christian artists who travels all over the world and, and talks about Jesus and shares her faith. And many people come to Jesus at her concerts. And many people have come to Jesus through her story. And many people have come to Jesus through her testimony. And you know, the irony of it all is I had nothing to do with that. 
But God is drawn to lost people. And he will leave the 99 and go in search of the one. He will uproot the status quo of an environment to make sure that that which is lost, which is precious to him, is found. And he will make a way for someone who is distant from him to find an easy route back. God is a lostologist. My question to you tonight is, will you, will I start to orientate ourselves a little bit more like that? Will we start to think a little bit more intentionally about that part of what it means to be people in the family of God? And you may be surprised at the lives and the families that are changed by one conversation that you may have on a street corner that turns out to cut across a generational problem in a family where somebody's life was automatically going in this direction, but because God, who cares about those outside of his family, interrupted that plan, it now goes in a different direction. That young lady in Glasgow is one of the deacons of another church in the city, and her and her husband have the most exceptional ministry. My uncle, who talked about Van Danigan and Jesus was a space pilot who came down from heaven, is a born-again believer with his lovely Irish accent and his daughter Philippa and his wife who loves Jesus too. And they go all over the country telling people about Jesus. You never know. You never know. But here's what we do know. God cares. God is drawn. God moves towards that which is lost and outside of the family of God. My question to us And to me personally, as I step towards what I think will be a time in the history of the church where many, many hundreds of thousands of people will come to faith in Jesus, I have a great confidence that that's about to happen. I'm just wondering how that could ever happen if we are so closeted and small in our understanding of who God is interested in and how God can change a heart and a life.